Good morning. Uh, I want to invite you to turn, to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18. And while you're turning there, I just want to say that it is my joy to have the privilege of preaching this week and over the course of the next couple weeks. And it's a responsibility that I don't take lightly. You know, we've been going through the book of 2 Timothy this summer as we look to some of Paul's parting words to a man who was like a son to him in Timothy. But we know that this book is not only words written by a man, written by a man who is near death, but it was also, in fact, inspired by the Holy Spirit and is God's words. And because of this fact, we can read this morning with confidence, knowing that It wasn't only profitable for the church in Ephesus, but it also has value for us today. And I want to read it this morning with that expectation, that God is going to speak to us through his word in a way that we can apply it to our lives. So let's start by reading our passage this morning, starting in 2 Timothy 2, verse 14. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? Once again, that's 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 18. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to your truth. Father, that you would convict us of sin and that you would remind us of the truth in the gospel. God, would you help us to not be people who are quarrelsome, but people who desire to live for your approval, people who rightly handle the truth. Help us, Lord. We need you. We can't do this without you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. To give you a quick roadmap of where we're going to head, I want to first set up a little bit of groundwork, a little bit of background, and then by the end of this sermon, I want to encourage you to be a worker approved by God who rightly handles the truth. To be a worker approved by God who rightly handles the truth. But first, a little bit of groundwork. So at this point in the letter, there is a shift in the focus of what Paul is talking about, and this shift will last nearly through the end of the letter. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has been writing more specifically about Timothy and his own personal ministry. It's been kind of a personal address to Timothy. But here, Paul begins to talk with more of an outward focus, specifically addressing false teachings 
that are prominent around Ephesus and how Timothy should handle these false teachers. And in our specific passage, Paul begins by presenting this contrasting picture of two different types of workers, an approved worker and an unapproved worker. A contrasting picture of an approved worker and an unapproved worker. And as we work through this passage, I want to challenge you to think about these distinctions on a personal level. Which type of worker best describes your life? Are you working as one who is seeking God's approval, rightly handling the word of truth, or have you swerved from the truth? Are you an approved worker or an unapproved worker? And let's start by looking at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So later in this passage, Paul will warn against the dangers of the false teaching, the specific false teaching that we're talking about. But this first warning is actually for the church. Don't quarrel about words. So let's start really quickly with what this isn't saying. This isn't saying that words are meaningless. This isn't uh, an attempt to silence the church and just tell them to not ever speak about anything. And if you want proof that Paul is willing to call out uh, someone else, read Galatians 2, where Paul calls out Peter for his inconsistent treatment of the Jews and the Gentiles. Calling out sin is good. Defending doctrine is good. Speaking up for the poor and vulnerable is good. So then, what is this saying? Paul is prohibiting the quarreling that happens over secondary matters. Quarreling that misses the point and focuses on the wrong things. And in contrast to arguing when the gospel is at stake, this serves no visible purpose. It does no good. Quarreling over words does no good. Fighting over secondary matters does no good. And debating trivial topics does no good. Let me give you an example. Imagine somebody who is really moved by a worship song, maybe one of the ones that we sang this morning, and then walks out into the lobby and overhears a conversation of people complaining about a small disagreement in one of the lyrics. Now, when that person hears that song, all they can hear is that one disagreement. No longer moves them to worship. It simply leads them to cynicism. I don't know about you, but it doesn't take me long to think of other secondary matters that people quarrel about, that I've felt in my own heart, that I've heard, that I've thought. The volume, it's too loud. The volume, it's too soft. The preaching, it's too dry. The preaching, it's too energetic. The song, that's too high for my vocal range. This song, it's too low for my vocal range. This preacher's introduction was too long. This sermon had too few illustrations. I can't stand his voice. <laughs> I can't stand his facial expressions. And the list goes on and on and on. And those are only the examples from a worship service. One hour on a Sunday morning, not to mention the other 167 hours in a week. 
Are those topics really what Christians care about the most? More than outdoing one another in love? More than boldly sharing our faith? More than fighting sin and community? Are those secondary matters what Christians care about the most? Obviously, we would all say that those secondary matters aren't the things that we care about the most. But if someone listened in on our conversations, would they reach the same conclusion? It's so easy for the body of Christ to get distracted by secondary matters. It's so easy for the body of Christ to get distracted by secondary matters. And just as blinders are put on a racehorse before it enters the gate, this is a warning for the church to stay away from secondary issues, to narrow our vision and focus the church's eyes on what's important. As the horse's eyes are fixed on the race ahead, brothers and sisters, let's fix our eyes on the wonders of our God. Let's fix our eyes on the hope found in Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on the beauty of obedience. And how do we do that? Let's read verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. It's essential to point out in this verse that it says, present yourself to God, not man. The aim of the believer is to be right, is not to be right before man. It's not to get caught up in trivial arguments proving our point about secondary matters. It is to live fully devoted to being fully approved by God. And the phrase used here, do your best, it implies working with zeal. Working with zeal, with excitement, with enthusiasm. This isn't just giving it the old college try and hoping things work out in the end. This is a picture of a worker who is intentional and disciplined. This is the athlete from chapter 2, verse 5, that we heard about a couple weeks ago, who is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You don't see professional athletes who just happen upon explosive athleticism and carefully crafted skills and multi-million dollar contracts. Sure, some people are more naturally gifted than others, but each athlete has put in years of training and practice, of doing their best with zeal. This is also the hardworking farmer from chapter 2, verse 6. You, you don't see farmers who just happen upon the field ready for harvest. Each farmer puts in hours of work tilling the ground, planting seeds, watering the growth, and finally harvesting the crop. Each farmer zealously cares for their land. And in the same way, Christians do not just happen upon living lives that glorify and honor God. Being an approved worker requires a zealous intentionality and discipline. Work with zeal to understand God's word. 
Work with zeal to fight sin. Work with zeal to share the gospel. We are called to do our best to work with zeal so that we might please our Creator and Redeemer. Do your best to present yourself to, one, to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Even in the way this is worded, do your best, there, there almost seems to be an acknowledgement that this won't be done perfectly. And, and it won't. We know that. We know that because of our sinful nature, we will never be able in our own strength to be fully approved by God. We're going to mess up. We're going to fail. We're going to have some days that are way worse than ours. In our own power, we, we can't do it. Yet that does not excuse us from pursuing obedience to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's mention here of not being ashamed is different from previous mentions in the letter of not being ashamed. So the earlier comments to not be ashamed are talking about being ashamed of the gospel, to not be ashamed of our testimony, to not be ashamed of Paul's testimony, to not be ashamed of Christ's testimony. However, in this verse, Paul is talking about not being ashamed of the way that we are living our lives. We are to zealously do our best so that at the end of the day, at the end of the week, and at the end of our lives, we can look back and have no shame. Not that we can look back and see our perfection, but that we can look back on our lives and we can say that we sought God's approval over man's. And with that being said, I want you to think about this last week. Think about this last week. Think about any time that you spent in the Word, any time you spent in prayer. Think about conversations you had with your family, your friends, your coworkers. Think about what motivated your decisions and think about who you were seeking to please this past week. Can you look back on this past week and say that you have no need to be ashamed? Have you been living your life with a zealous desire to do your best to be approved by God? And if not, what can you do to change? Well, verse 15 ends with one essential place that you can start. Rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. If we want to avoid quarrels about words, we must rightly handle the truth. If we want to avoid letting the world tell us what to think, we must rightly handle the truth. If we want to do our best to present ourselves to God, we must rightly handle the truth. Now, on the one hand, this is a command for, for preachers and pastors like Timothy to correctly teach the word to their people. However, on the other hand, this is something that should be the desire of every Christian. Rightly handling the word isn't an, ex an exclusive command to, for pastors. It is the duty of every Christian in this congregation— how can you seek to please God if you don't know what he commands? How can you love your neighbor 
if you don't read about God's sacrificial love for you? How can you share the gospel if you aren't going to the source of anything we know about the gospel? If you desire to be approved before God and to live without shame, you must start with rightly handling the truth. And brothers and sisters, if you don't rightly handle God's word, you are in danger of swerving from the truth, just like the false teachers described in this passage. Let's look at it. Let's read verses 16 through 18. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. It's in these verses that we get the clearest picture of the specific false teaching that Paul is addressing in this letter. It starts in, verse, it starts in the middle of verse 17. He says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on the specifics of this false teaching, uh, but I want to help you understand what these verses are saying so that they aren't a hindrance to you understanding what point Paul is trying to make. Okay, so this isn't talking about the actual resurrection of Jesus, which in fact had already happened at this point. It's not talking about the resurrection of Jesus. This is talking about false teachers who had some sort of disagreement about the future bodily resurrection of believers. It's not known exactly what they were teaching because this is really the only mention that Paul makes of it. But most likely was them saying that the bodily resurrection happens the moment a believer believes, not after death. And that means that the believer also gets all the benefits of a resurrected body in this life. All of the health, the wealth, the privileges of a glorified resurrected body. They were teaching that this happens in this life. It's almost a type of prosperity teaching. You can think of it in that way. Saying that believers in Jesus can live their best life now because they get all of the benefits of a post-resurrection body. Okay, here's why I don't want you to get caught up in the details. Just doing a quick show of hands, I just want to see how many of you have had an impassioned quarrel with another person about the future bodily resurrection of believers. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, <laughs> instead, I want to focus on the underlying error which led to their false teaching. And that is mentioned at the start of verse 18. It says, They swerved from the truth. They swerved from the truth. In direct contrast to the approved worker who rightly handles the truth, we now get a picture of an unapproved worker who has first and foremost swerved from the truth, swerved from the genuine teaching of Scripture, and departed from the gospel. And what we see in verse 16 is that this leads people 
into more and more ungodliness. It leads people into more and more ungodliness. And this is an interesting phrase because saying leads people more and more, it kind of implies some sort of forward motion, almost as if like progress is being made. But paired with ungodliness, it's simply progress that's moving in the wrong direction. This past January, I had the opportunity to um, go to Haiti through the residency program that I'm a part of. And while I was there, our team had the privilege of visiting a faithful church that meets in a tiny little mountain village called Astruc. In order to get to Astruc, you have to drive really slowly on unpaved roads through the mountains, twice fording over a river. And depending on how the rains fall and the river floods each year, uh, the gravel roads change a little bit from year to year. New routes are carved on more solid ground. Old routes get flooded and, or erode away completely. And so from year to year, the route to a struke is always a little bit different. And we got there okay, but as we were leaving a struke to go back to the mission center, we were kind of like driving alongside the river. So imagine we're going parallel to the river, and we're looking for the point in which we need to cross back over the river. And the missionary who was our leader, he couldn't remember at which point we needed to turn. You know, there were no street signs, no Google Maps, gasp. And going only based on our memory, we passed our turn and began to drive even further down the road. And as we drove, we went another 10, then 15, then 20 minutes. Yes, it took us that long to realize that we were going the wrong way. Pretty soon, the river was no longer in sight. All of the buildings looked new. And we finally came to the realization that we weren't going in the right direction at all. You see, we felt like we were making progress, but we were going in the wrong direction entirely. And the second we asked a local which direction we needed to go, we were pointed in the right direction and found our way back, no problem. You see, relying on a faulty source of truth, in this case, it was our own memory, it only led us to progress in the wrong direction. Relying on the proper source of truth showed us what true progress looked like. Relying on the proper source of truth showed us what true progress looked like. If we want to be led into more and more godliness and make progress in the right direction, we must rightly handle the truth. We can't get truth from politicians. We can't get truth from thought leaders. We can't get truth from social media influencers or even our own feelings. We must get truth from God's word. And the dangers of swerving from the truth are seen all over verses 16 through 18. As we just saw, verse 16 says that it will lead other people into more and more ungodliness. Verse 17 says that their talk will spread like gangrene, like a contagious infection. Verse 18 says the false teaching is upsetting the faith of some. Swerving from the truth isn't just dangerous for us personally. It's dangerous for those around us too. 
it leads others into ungodliness. It, it spreads to others like a virus. It upsets the faith of others. The stakes are higher than just your own faith. I have a roommate that goes to this church. Many of you know him. I don't want to single him out too much, but he's wearing a red shirt and singing this morning. (laughs) (laughs) And this past January, uh, my roommate made a very serious New Year's resolution to boo more. Yes, to boo more. So, like, something happens on the TV he doesn't like, boo. If I say something he doesn't like, boo. And to be, I'm going to be very honest with you, it has been one of the most successful New Year's resolutions I've ever witnessed in my life. But before long, I noticed that I started booing too. And not just around him either. Like, I started doing it around my other friends, people who didn't even know him. And I do it with the exact same mannerisms, too. I always put my mouth, my hand in my mouth. My friend says he can't hang out. Boo! My brother, he tells me he can't go golfing. Boo! Whether my roommate planned it or not, his New Year's resolution affected me. And obviously, this is a silly example, but it's a reminder that you are being watched and you are being emulated by those who are in your life. People are watching the way you live your life. They're watching the way you talk. They're watching the way you act. And they're watching how you handle the word of truth. How you handle God's word will have an effect on people in your life. How you handle the truth will affect those around you. If you swerve from the truth, you run the risk of leading others into ungodliness, of lies spreading like gangrene and upsetting the faith of some. If you rightly handle the truth, you will be an approved worker before God who points people to the gospel. As we wrap up this morning, I want to read from Matthew 12. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew 12, just to follow along. Matthew 12, we're going to read verses 18 through 21. Matthew 12, 18 through 21. It's a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. As we read and hear about doing our best 
to be approved before God. It's easy to just focus on how imperfect we are and just hone in on what we are doing poorly. Though we work hard to be approved, and and that is clearly commanded for us here as we talked about, we're all doing this imperfectly. We don't handle the truth rightly at all times. We are lazy and we're apathetic people at times. And if I'm being honest, there are times in my life where I wonder how I will ever be approved by God because I so clearly see how I fall short. And in this passage in Matthew, we get a picture of our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our only hope for ultimately being approved before God. Our perfect Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who did not quarrel at all. He did not cry aloud. Instead, he willingly suffered on our behalf. He willingly went to the cross and died a criminal's death. He willingly took on the full wrath of God, the wrath that we deserved. And he did not quarrel or cry aloud. He did not quarrel so that you and me, our friends, our family, the town of Evanston, so that Jew and Gentile, so that people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, he did not quarrel so that we could have hope. So that God could look down at us and God could say about us, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. And if you are in Christ this morning, God already says that about you. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Brothers and sisters, do not hear this word this morning as a legalistic way to earn God's approval. Hear this word as a love letter from the one who willingly went to the cross without quarreling so that you could be approved before him. Put your faith and all of your trust in Jesus as the ultimate reason that you are approved before God. But also, go, brothers and sisters, not out of lifeless duty, but with zeal, do your best to be a worker who rightly handles the truth, seeking the approval of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your unconditional love. God, we don't deserve the love that you freely give to us through your Son. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of the ways that that we sin, that we turn against you, Lord, but I pray that you would help us to live in your freedom. And I pray that you would help us to freely seek obedience, to freely seek your approval, Lord. God, we, we love you. We just rest in the promises of Scripture. We rest in the promises of your word of truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.